is Charmaine Kremji, and I am a Soros Fellow at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson. Oh, congratulations. Thank you, and International Affairs. Um, I'm curious, thank you for sharing your story. I'm curious if in your line of work um, and through the Acumen Fund, if you've along the way found limitations to the market solution, if there's, um, you know, while, while the market will provide access to these franchise, disenfranchised communities, to what extent are some of these ills political, um, whether it be race, racism, sexism, um, north-south divides, sort of how do you work through that and, and sort of have hope in the market, but at the same time be sensitive to the limitations of the market, if you see any limitations, that is? We see huge limitations to the market. We are not at all market fundamentalist at all. Um, let me say that again. You know, um, it, it, It's with great humility that we even... We use the market because we believe it's the best listening device that we have. That when you go into a village and you dig a well, everyone says thank you, thank you, and you do a, cut, a ribbon cutting, and there's no accountability. Um, which is why five years later we see so many wells that are broken and have bad water in it. The market enables a different level of communication because people will tell you what's working and what's not working much more clearly if they feel that they're buying it. Even if they're paying a hundredth of the price. There's still a transaction. Um, in in almost every um, area in which we work, certainly healthcare. Um, I mean, this country should have proven to the world the private, a private sector approach only to healthcare is not the, going to create the world we want to live in. Um, but in some areas in energy, we're actually finding that the market might work. The reason being that. Um, Poor people already have a real habit of paying for energy, and they see a direct correlation between energy and income and productivity. So D-Light, which creates a solar light, um, has really been selling like wildfire, um, in large part because people are just substituting. They're already paying for kerosene. Now they're paying for solar. What's holding them back is that the Indian government continues to subsidize the price of kerosene, despite its sturdiness, despite that what it does to health, despite its expense. Um, for the low-income uh, population. So that's got to change, and that's a policy area. Um, in healthcare, we see where the market can work, where it's limited, but what I'm, and in, in, in some areas, certainly in vaccines, I wouldn't have a market solution at all. In fact, I think in some cases we should pay people and incentivize them. But um, what's been so exciting to me, for instance, in LifeSpring, which is a maternal healthcare hospital in India, not only are we seeing that people make decisions that are really poor, uh, people making one or two dollars a day, if they think they're having a son, will choose to go to a public, a private hospital and pay $200 um, to make sure that child is delivered well. So figuring out how the poor make decisions is something that has been an extraordinary journey, and we don't have any of the answers still. Um, but what we see through Life Springs is at which price point many poor people will pay so that they can take some of the, the, the pressure off the public sector. We're also seeing that it costs Life Spring 1,000 rupees to deliver a baby. And it costs the government 5,000 rupees. So that's another conversation that we need to start having. Why is it so inefficient and ineffective? And how should we use our public dollars better? And that's another hope that I have with Acumen that that by going in through the markets, we can create more efficient models. We can also show very clearly where the market fails. Um, but again, with a stronger, more credible voice, so that hopefully public policy will get a little smarter. Um, and that's, 
that's kind of how we see the world. Yeah. My name is Karen Raz, and uh, I'm a third-year law student at NYU. And I'm doing a lot of work on legal forms uh, for hybrid nonprofit for-profits, um, and what are the also the general legal issues that innovative social entrepreneurs face. And so I understand Acumen Fund's a 501c3, and I'm curious if that's an ideal form, and if it is, why? And if it's not, where? what are the trade-offs? <laughs> I talk about this for hours as well. We spend about, we get about $2 million of pro bono legal services a year. The legal stuff is so overwhelming to me, um, both with Acumen as well as each of these deals, because our deals are also not the usual kind of deals that lawyers, which is why the lawyers actually give us all this pro bono time because it's so interesting, but it's a big burden, um, to put it lightly. Um, when, we, when, I, when, when I started Acumen Fund, it was just me. Um, we decided to do it as a public charity, uh, 501c3, because it was really the, the most flexible form that we had. Um, the IRS did not want to give us uh, a tax exemption. And in fact, there was a big red flag put on the, the front page of this a very thick document um, saying you have five years to prove that you are a 501c3, but don't count on getting it. Um, so I was very nervous for the first five years. We did end up being approved as a 501c3. A lot of people say, why aren't you a for-profit? Um, the reason that we're not a for-profit is uh, precisely because of the limitations of the market and because we're trying to build models and take really high risk. I mean, we tell people we're in the high risk, low return, sweet spot of the market. <laughs> so come on and invest with us. And when you're in that sweet spot, the, your, your, your highest returns are not going to offset the losses that you take. And if you're going to take risks, you're going to have losses. So fundamentally, I don't see um, a building a corpus that can make enough returns and cover our costs um, and take the kind of social change risks that we want to take. So being a for-profit is out. We do have a for-profit fund that we own for uh, companies that are in their second, third, fourth, fifth round where um, we're still only um, making no promises and people might get 3 to 6% returns after 10 years which some people might say is more tantamount to grant grants. But I think the world is changing, and there's a market for that. But the, 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 the general corpus for Acumen um, needs to be a nonprofit, given the, 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 the role in social change and policy that we want to make. And there are no other options for us yet um, in terms of the kind of hybrids that are needed. Um, our lawyers tell us at some point we'll be probably testifying in front of Congress for new forms, but those new forms haven't been created. Good morning. My name is Maho Khodi Makhane, and um, I'm a Reynolds Fellow at NYU. Thank you so much for coming to join us this morning. Um, my question has something to do with something I heard you talking about at CGI. You're talking about dignity, but in the context of beauty, and how important it is to have beauty for products and services that are for the base of the pyramid. Um, this is something that really strikes me, and it really 
resonated with me. I'm South African, I'm from Soweto, and for me, you know, being in my hometown, I always feel there's such a tremendous disconnect between what people see and how we live our lives on the inside, that we're full of so much pride. If you've ever been to a home in Soweto, I mean, you could almost use a curtain as a wedding veil, basically, but the world doesn't see that. So I'm curious, how do you see that? How did you come to see that? And what does beauty mean for the products and services that you offer through Acumen? Um, the, I, I, I think um, there's a there's a, a story in the in the blue sweater about called Dancing in the Dark. Um, as a as a very young woman, um, seeing in uh, it was actually a Mathari slum and seeing these women who dragged me into this little time not dragged me invited me into this little uh, um, <laughs> um, this little hut. And we just danced and danced and danced, and it was so beautiful. It will forever be one of the most extraordinary, almost dreamlike experiences of my life. Um, and it always struck me that I would be in slums um, or in rural villages with, for, with people who had not very little. And yet there were geraniums planted in coffee cans. There were the, the, the doilies that, that people, and I've spent a lot of time in Soweto actually, with the Black Housewife Leagues, Housewives Leagues, who is this incredible organization of women who even during the worst parts of apartheid would not only take care of all of the children in the community work in Soweto, but they would sneak to the dormitories where their husbands were essentially kept as workers and give them food and notes at night. Just incredibly courageous women. And I, um, and I would love sitting with them and hearing their stories and, and the singing. And, and I actually yearned for more of it in, in my own life, in, in the life of a New Yorker. Um, and so I think the gift was just being young and exposed um, through these incredible women mostly um, in East Africa um, and Southern Africa. Um, at the time, we would never go to South Africa. Um, in fact, you would only call it the racist apartheid regime of South Africa. We were all very righteous. Um, and, but we would go to Zimbabwe, where Robert Mugabe was our hero. Uh, so the world does change. <laughs> um, and we would throw flowers in the streets when he would run through, um, because he was a liberator. But, the, um, but what, I've, what I've learned over and over and over, and, and, and Catherine and I just was that we had this unbelievable experience um, where seven young um, men, slum dwellers, um, who had each read my book, took it upon themselves to create uh, book clubs in the slums. And then when they heard we were coming to Kenya, they asked if I would do a, a speech and have a book club um, that turned out to be 100 slum dwellers who walked in carrying this book. And it was just beyond all dressed beautifully. Um, and the questions they asked had nothing to do about patient capital, nothing to do about um, Acumen's approach. Um, they asked questions about, um, one woman said, you know, I want to be an international leader on the stage like you. And I am as talented as you are. <laughs> and she said, but I have 12 grandchildren, and they need so much of my time, and I just don't know how to balance this focus on my family and the community and how I want to be a leader in the world. And I was like, Welcome to my world. You know that is what it means, and it was so interesting that the, that it, that people just want to connect on a human level, um, and so I think, and you know, in public health, I think public health is the worst offender of all, because we only speak in terms of what people need, should have, what they should do, 
none of us make decisions based on what we should do. Catherine and I were coming over talking about how our doctors tell us that we should not eat white flour or candy or sugar or wine, which is pretty much our whole diet. <laughs> and um, we don't, we know what we should do, but we don't make decisions that way. And so couldn't we be smarter as the world at, at, and thinking about what people actually do do, which goes back to the market as a listening device, and actually interact with them and then build solutions, whether it's about beauty, it's about status, comfort. Um, this is how we really make decisions and integrate that so that people are not only participating, but they're more excited about actually participating in the decisions that will change their lives. Yeah. Bless you. Bless you again. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Amita Swadi, and I'm an NYU Reynolds Fellow at the School of Public Service. Thank you for being here. My work is mostly around uh, interpersonal violence and interventions in interpersonal violence, which trying to find market solutions directly is usually not going to work. But I'm curious to see whether you have conducted any studies on secondary effects of the dignity that is brought to anti-poverty interventions. Um, for example, Jane, and whether she was less uh, vulnerable to interpersonal violence, sexual violence, domestic violence, because of the benefits of um, the status of living status that she's been able to gain through the Acumen Fund. Um, you know, we never have, and um, it's it's interesting because we've been uh, approached by a number of of groups that want to that would support us if we were more focused specifically on women. And so we're now in conversations with them, trying to help them see the power of um, providing services to the bottom of the pyramid and how that disproportionately impacts women. Um, certainly, anecdotally, I've seen direct change. Um, when I was in Rwanda, I started a bakery with 20 single mothers who um, often would tell stories about how they never had any money. And you see this in, in, in Nairobi slums also. And so when the landlord would come and collect the money. Um, they would sometimes sleep with them as payment, um, not wanting to, but not seeing choice. And what the women would talk about at the bakery was that once they had cash, it was, it was very easy for them to say no. Um, in, some, in some communities, the violence is so great um, that you see self-rule uh, just become part of the fabric. And so um, I'm not sure how much you protect yourself unless you move. Uh, Jane is extraordinary because um, she looks so, she's so beautiful. I mean, she has this kind of Audrey Hepburn um, bone structure. And um, in the middle of her forehead is a, a big star of a scar, which has its own beauty. But the um, way she got that scar was um, needing to go to a toilet one night. And she, but it wasn't even dark yet, and she was walking down the street, and just a guy came up and smashed her in the head with a rock. Taken to a hospital, she had no money, um, so the doctor wouldn't treat her, um, and she just lied there for about four hours. And so when they, when they finally, when neighbors finally got enough money, they just kind of did a terrible job sewing her up. Um, Jane is pretty extraordinary um, now. Um, there's, a, there's a risk in being successful. And her daughter was actually jumped um, almost as a don't, don't get too proud. So um, I think there's, these, these are such complicated questions 
not, the, the answers to these questions are so complicated. Um, as communities gain wealth, as um, individual households um, see their own ability to make decisions, I do, th I do think we see reductions. Um, but violence is a community, uh, tends to be a community thing. And it's, it's, it's interesting, though, when you look at the most violent societies, it's South Africa and it's the United States. Um, and so I think we have to look at that as well. What does that mean? It's not just income. So we're out of time. Um, but <laughs> sorry. Um, but it's really just so excited for you, each of you, and the journeys that you're going to take. And uh, just really live out loud. That's the thing that I would really hope that you do. And just know how much we need you as a world. Um, truly, and that you're here because we need you so much. And good luck to each of you. Thank you.